Why did the scarecrow get the job? Tell us. He was outstanding in his field. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Startup Stack. I'm your host, Lewis Farrell. This week, we're talking to Hugh Norton-Smith, founder and partner at Intersection Growth Partners, about all things executive recruiting. Full transparency, we actually recorded this conversation over the summer. But for reasons I'll explain, now feels like the perfect time to be releasing it. As a recruiter, Hugh splits his time between two very different worlds. The world of incumbent financial institutions and the one coming up to challenge it, fintech. You might call it the old world and the new one. So who could be better to talk to about the year to come? We talked a lot about what the next five years will look like in finance. We also covered topics like, what is executive recruiting? What's it like to run a company that specializes in it? And when is it time to hire one? Plus, why working with a larger recruiting firm often isn't the right way to go. Let's get into it. Hugh, thank you for joining us on the Startup Stack podcast. Lewis, thanks for having me. You're the co-founder of Intersection Growth Partners, and you're one of the partners at the company. Tell us a little bit about what Intersection is. Yeah, so we're an executive search firm which builds out leadership teams for fintechs, uh, Lewis, I know this is a space uh, you lived in for some time, given your earnest heritage. Uh, I suspect the phrase fintech gives you a degree of PTSD. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Intersection is based in the Bay Area, although I have to say our San Francisco office is uh, at this stage, admittedly, looking a little bit dusty. Uh, and we launched at the end of 2018. And in terms of what we do, we work with a whole bunch of really interesting growth stage fintechs. We work with incumbent banks, asset managers, and insurers that are doing interesting stuff in and around innovation, as well as some of the kind of big venture firms that invest actively into fintech. And we started the business because essentially there was a gap in the marketplace for a search firm that lived and breathed fintech. Uh, But we also saw that the old world of financial services, which I came out of, was rapidly converging on uh, the new world. And I thought there was an interesting opportunity there to sit in the middle and cross-pollinate the most talented folks. Yeah, you know, it's, it's fascinating what Intersection does. And, you know, I was wondering if we could take a step back. And, you know, we're talking about executive recruiting. You know, when you think about your career, when, when did you know you wanted to be an executive recruiter? Um, when, when did you even first hear about executive recruiting? I have to confess, I fell into the industry like a fair few folks do. I uh, had a humanities degree, moved back to London, having lived in Australia for some years prior to that, and was somewhat directionless and really felt like I wanted to do something in and around financial services because at that time it was such a hot area in London. But I wanted to do something that also leveraged what I enjoyed most, which was interacting with really interesting people. And so I started in, sorry, in London originally, relocated to New York. I've been in the industry for about 15 years. I had a brief detour as a founder of a now defunct seed stage HR tech company. Um, But other than that, again, I've been a career executive recruiter, um, originally with a focus on investment management, uh, mainly in and around the kind of zany, exciting world of hedge funds. And um, to your earlier point, I'm one of the rare beasts who's grown up in the executive recruiting industry. 
Many others make a professional pivot into it in their 30s or 40s after working in, you know, banking or management consulting or similar. And I think there are benefits to both backgrounds in search. Uh, Coming out of industry gives you a degree of credibility with some clients. Uh, In my case, as an executive search lifer, at the risk of being a little bit self-promoting, I think it gives you a stronger sense for the discipline of executive search. You become a really strong practitioner of it. You also had some startup experience in there. And, you know, do you think that that experience uh, makes you a better exec recruiter working with other entrepreneurs? I, I believe so. I mean, first of all, we work with a lot of early stage companies, founders, entrepreneurs. Um, I know what it's like to be in their shoes, the daily struggles of raising capital, building teams, evangelizing a difficult mission. So I think that's helped build a degree of empathy and hopefully credibility with that community. Uh, this is now my second turn as a founder. And certainly, it was very much a trial by tribulation originally. And I think we've had a degree more success with the new business, specifically because I uh, went through that initial steep learning curve. Did you ever think after the first business, oh, that's it, I'll never start another company? Oh, absolutely. I spent a couple of months in a in a fetal position, really <laughs> thinking very hard about you know, doing something altogether more... Uh, altogether more healthy, like becoming a teacher. But I think, look, when, when you've started a business and you've grown something, you've got the notice of clients, I, there's a huge degree of pride and excitement around it. And and I think wanted to continue to do something as hackneyed as it sounds, it's actually building enterprise value, something which is durable versus being just another cog in the wheel. So I really wanted to do the founder thing again, albeit in a business that I knew really, really well. I'd love to dive a little bit more into the founding story of Intersection. You know, a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs themselves of all types of businesses. Some of them might even be thinking about building their own executive recruiting firms. And so I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about the beginning. Clearly, you were a founder from your previous experience, but you know, how did, how did you and your co-founders come together? How did you know that it was the right time to start your own firm? I'd love to hear about some of the challenges from the, from the really early days. Yeah, so my co-founders, well, one of my co-founders, Scott Fletcher, and I had worked together for a number of years in New York with a different organization and had both moved out to the West Coast about the same time. And so we had, you know, a longstanding, very trusted relationship and I think wanted to get the band back together. We intentionally wanted to build out uh, a broader founding team. So we brought on board a third co-founder and and um, as it relates to challenges since gr- since starting, I mean, I, I think we had um, an incredibly exciting first full year in 2019. 2020, as you'd expect, has been uh, interesting to say the least. I think we're out of the doldrums at the moment. But like any uh, small business, we are facing all sorts of interesting hurdles as a function of the current environment. You know, as, as I think about starting my own companies... There have been these moments of deep despair, thinking this is never going to work. But you know, there are also the moments where you're like, you know, I, I really think that this is going to be a successful company. We're really onto something. I was wondering if you could tell us any moments where it all clicked for you. And you know, I know Intersection has a focus on on fintechs, where you 
could kind of sense, hey, we're really doing something different. And this, I really think this is going to work and, you know, be a great company. So I think you bring up a great point. I mean, one of the interesting things about starting your own business, right, is you have this incredible level of personal emotional volatility. um, And it changes on a day-to-day basis, right? You have days where you're pumping your fist in excitement. You have other days where you're in the depths of despondency because something hasn't worked out. Um, so there are extraordinarily high, extraordinary highs and lows. Um, I think we found pretty quickly that the message of having a deep vertical specialization in fintech was one that was attractive to our clients. And so from day one, I think our conversations were very positive. When we started the company, the first couple of months were quiet, but I think uh, we began to build a reputation. Uh, we began to build out our network across the industry. And so I think things began to pick up really in the second quarter of 2019, and things have continued to head in a pretty nice path. Yeah. You know, as a former financial services executive myself, I have always found that financial services as an industry really has specific challenges. And when you think about wanting to recruit executives, you want them to have specific experiences, specific networks, specific understandings. Actually, I find it the value proposition of intersection to really be spot on, right? That I would want to work with a search firm that has deep knowledge in this, that has connections into the industry, that I would be meeting with executives with that, you know, that experience. My question for you is, it seems so obvious. Why are you one of the few firms doing it? Why aren't all you know, executive search firms specialized by industry, you know, as opposed to what we typically see where they specialize by function. Why do you think that's the case? So the big search firms all do have a sort of mixture of functional specializations and vertical specializations. Now on the boutique side, as far as we're aware, there is no company that solely does fintech, at least in the United States. Because we've seen it in in venture firms, for example. There's been a whole proliferation of venture firms specializing by industry, you know, a number that do fintech specific now um, and have a lot of success. Yeah, that's right. You've got QED and Ribbit, you know, Andreessen has a pretty separate fintech effort. Um and yeah, so I think it's a very natural, you know, for us, it was a very natural gap to focus on in the marketplace. You know, it's also an industry which is rapidly institutionalizing. And if you think about a lot of these growth stage organizations, which are started by predominantly, you know, founders who come out of product and engineering backgrounds, uh, people who don't have a huge amount of experience in this very idiosyncratic, highly regulated industry. It's really important to be able to build around these people executive leadership teams that can help them internationalize, compete in the sandbox with these big institutions. And so for us, you know, a ton of the work we've done on the growth side has been finding chief risk officers, head of policy, uh, chief compliance officers. All of these people who bring a level of real financial services acumen um, to buttress these kind of visionary founders. But getting back to, you know, whether or not there are other fintech search professionals out there. Yeah, I mean, there are people within the financial services practices at Spencer Stewart, Hydrate, Russell Reynolds, all the other big search firms that, you know, do this part time. Uh, But our focus is really on living and breathing it with a huge degree of passion. That's great. I'd, I'd love to get into the nuts and bolts for a second of executive recruiting. You know, as you think about meeting founders and CEOs, 
if you were going to give them advice or you, we were going to talk about it for a moment about like, when do you think the right moment is for a company to hire you? And, you know, I imagine that out there, sometimes you meet companies and like they're a little bit too early to be working with you. Or actually, sometimes you feel like, gosh, you guys are a year too late. Um, you should have hired us a year ago for this. We would have really would have helped you. I wonder how you think through that. What advice would you give to other founders out there? We've worked with companies at the seed and age stage, A stage beforehand. Uh, those are typically companies where uh, they are well-known founders and have done pretty sizable raises for that, uh, that seed and that A. Uh, but typically, it's at the B stage and beyond, particularly as those executive functions become more important and, frankly, they end up uh, having more money to spend on things like recruiting versus just shaking the trees of their own network. Um, I, I, I don't think there are many times when we can be bought in too late. Um, I mean, typically we're bought in when the CEO or the internal talent teams have exhausted their own networks or simply overloaded and need a bunch of leverage. Um, but I, th I think we can be helpful at a bunch of different stages. Um, obviously, it's much harder to do our job if we've taken over from a previous search firm and where they've called hundreds and hundreds of people already uh, or just manage a process really poorly. We find that it's much more likely to find a successful outcome if we're hitting the market with a really exciting, super fresh message where people are genuinely intrigued versus, oh, I heard about this search a couple of months ago from some dude at Basket Weaving Search Partners. Um, but, but again, we've worked at a bunch of different stages. You know, for founders very often, when they're thinking about hiring for any service, it's very normal that they might meet a couple of different service providers. So I imagine, you know, when you're first meeting a potential new client, you know, maybe they're talking to you. They're also talking to, you know, a couple of your competitors in the industry. What advice would you give to a founder in how to evaluate a potential partner to work with? You know, what are the questions they should be asking? What are the what are the things that they should be looking out for? Yeah, Lewis, this is a great question. I'd say it's very rare that we're not competing against a couple of search providers. I think the most important thing, and I'll touch on a couple of things, but I think the most important thing for hiring managers to figure out is um, who's actually doing the search at the search firm. We've spoken to a ton of clients who are sold on the relationships, the credibility, uh, the track record of some you know, very distinguished senior partner at a search firm without realizing that the heavy lifting is being done by a junior person in the team. Essentially, it's being farmed out. And here I mean that you know, everything from market research to calling candidates, interviewing them, gets outsourced to someone else in this sort of super highly leveraged model where they're not particularly seasoned. So I think, again, as a hiring, you know, as a hiring company, I'd make sure that there is, you know, no one behind the curtain. And the, the consultant who pitches you is actually doing the project soup to nuts. I mean, you're paying a ton of money uh, often this chunky retainer with executive search, and you deserve a ton of attention. Search providers are an extension of your brand, and with the right person on it, not the right company. I mean, the, co the company doesn't matter. It depends on the consultant. 
it'll generate a very different outcome. Um, I mean, one thing, as an example, is that we care deeply about constant referencing of candidates. We don't introduce people uh, unless we have at least two reads on them from peers or former colleagues or people we trust and respect, like yourself, Lewis. Yeah, I get I get a lot of those from you. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and frankly, someone who's newer to the space or hasn't been in the industry very long uh, to develop those trusted relationships where they can get the real skinny just isn't going to be able to do that. Um, so I think it's really important to figure out who's doing the search, doing the actual search. Um, I think the other thing, and this is a little bit more nebulous, is to figure out whether or not the company you're working with, how to put it, whether or not they're talent transactors or they want to play a more thoughtful advisory role. And, and I think as a search firm with really deep domain knowledge like Intersection, we get pretty unique insights into what's going on in the market, right? You know, the reputation of different firms and executives, recent hires, you know, the culture of different organizations, any pitfalls about them. And I think we can be a really helpful, powerful resource and sounding board versus just as people who lob over resumes. And so our best relationships are with clients and founders where we can add value as they think about, like, again, fundraising, partnerships, new ways to pay the executive team. Um, and you really want to, in my opinion, lean away from the search firm, which is like, hey, we can just crank over resumes with a whole, without a whole bunch of thought. I think finally, um, to round this out, it's really worth um, pushing on a search firm's commitment to diversity. Obviously, a hugely important topic these days. Uh, you know, maybe I'm overselling what we do, but executive hiring is literally transformational to many organizations. Um, and solving for hiring from underrepresented groups is not only the right thing to do, but it can be incredibly impactful. But what I dig in on is that it's easy for search firms to say they care about diversity and that it's a core value that you can see on the website. I, I personally despise that kind of banal phrase. But it's really ask, worth asking for specific stats over typical, you know, over the past year since inception of the company to demonstrate that this, you know, that this core value actually translates into real results. And I imagine that it's really top of mind for a lot of the leadership teams that you work with. They want to see a diverse set of candidates. They want to understand that you have a diverse network. You know, as you said, you're an extensive of their brand. If um, diversity as a value is um, important to the CEOs, you know, one of the only ways to execute on that from a leadership perspective is for them to be seeing a diverse set of candidates. And so they really want to make sure that the partners that they're working with are committed to that. So I think that's great. Yeah, 100%. Um, it is one of the universal and rightly so concerns of every client we interact with. You know, I'd love to th hear about other trends that you're seeing, you know, over the last six or 12 months. You know, maybe we could start with fintech-specific trends. What things are are you seeing in how people are building leadership teams, the types of companies? You know, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts, you know, as someone in the trenches day to day. Yeah, so I think as it relates to fintech specifically, this is obviously a burgeoning area. I can see why folks like yourself, Lewis, gone into it a number of years ago. I think that the current crisis we have is going to be an accelerant to tech adoption broadly and fintech more specifically. So I think there's an incredible secular tailwind there, despite all of the broad pain you're seeing in the wider marketplace. 
I think as it relates to trends in fintech and hiring or things that we found interesting is that, you know, the incumbent financial services companies really have got, they've sort of seen their own Kodak moment, right? And I think all of them are thinking pretty hard about innovation. And in some cases, this is just window dressing, but at other organizations, it's real sort of like essential commitment to changing their businesses. Um, so a lot of these firms we're finding are looking to hire people who have a growth mindset, people who understand all of these esoteric areas like crypto. And, and, and so sort of being able to hire people out of the new world has been, uh, for us, a very sort of powerful trend we've witnessed and want to get involved in. The other piece is, you know, again, as I mentioned, the growth stage companies really want to hire people out of, you know, Goldman and JP Morgan who can burnish their existing team and bring a whole bunch of other skills that don't currently exist on their side. Which way do you find it more difficult to recruit the candidate? Is it more difficult to recruit the candidate into the large organization or is it more difficult to recruit the uh, the candidate, you know, out of the large organization and into into one of the fintech companies or is it kind of it's a two-way street and actually people are just moving like cars passing on the Golden Gate Bridge? I, I think it. I, I think the answer is it depends, right? I mean, if you're hiring someone out of, you know, Amex or Capital One or Goldman, what you get a probe on is whether or not the person really has a uh, entrepreneurial mindset and whether or not they can get their arms around, you know, compensation, for instance, which is much have, more likely to be weighted towards equity versus cash. Um, because, look, everybody in traditional financial services kind of aspirationally has some desire to go and work at a Stripe or a Plaid or wherever, just because it's seen as sexy and interesting and new and novel. But at the same time, uh, for us, we need to screen very hard about that cultural transition. But going in the other direction, I think, you know, some people in this marketplace want the uh, reassurance of being aligned with a big established organization, particularly where that firm isn't, you know, going about digital transformation in a sort of half-hearted sort of extrinsic fashion versus doing it sort of intrinsically because it's valuable for the business. And do you think that's one of the big trends in the COVID-19 world that you're seeing that actually there is a, um, a trend of uh, executives looking for larger, more stable companies? Or are there other trends you're noticing? It's such a big change. I'd be fascinated to know. You know, I remember when I was doing my executive searches, you know, we'd go out to dinner together and then we'd meet the team and, you know, I'd go out with their families. I mean, how do people even get to, you know, build those relationships, you know, right now it must be very difficult? Yeah, I mean, it's been a total sea change. I mean, for me, uh, look, you're seeing me right now sitting in my very shabby garage, but I think it's been kind of cool to meet people at home, right? It really humanizes people, seeing them in their man cave or out sitting in the sunshine on their deck, wearing a t-shirt. I, have you had any good stories of um, a COVID, like a, you know, you heard about a client with like a COVID Zoom debacle or anything like that? I've, I mean, I've heard anecdotally about people, you know, family members walking naked behind a camera and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> You're hired. I mean, one of my first, one of my first questions with people when I'm meeting them over video is, "Dude, are you wearing pants?" <laughs> it's all, but it's always worrying if they don't stand up because then the suspicion is that they may have been fibbing. 
Yeah. My head of design has, has a real problem with uh, jean shorts. He really like, he, he just has like a hundred pairs of jean shorts. He's always wearing jean shorts. He's like, he makes them. I lived in Boston for a year or two and every other person there wears like jean shorts and Bruins shirts. It's not a good look. <laughs> He's from Canada. So I give him a pass. I'm, you know. Listen, in any event for like most of my career, you were putting on a suit. It felt like putting on a suit of armor every morning. It was kind of distancing. You're meeting people in your offices or at fancy coffee places, handing out a business card. It was always kind of a bit of a weird, very formal ritual and a bit kind of alienating. And I found that like it's counterintuitive given that meetings are now abstracted through video, but I feel like I'm building better, more natural relationship with candidates and often with our clients that feels kind of, again, more human, mm -hmm. a bit more trusted. And, you know, the, the risk of sounding a bit like an Instagram caption or something, it's it's really fun being your true goofy self with kids wandering around in the background and such. You know, and, and it's been interesting seeing as well the different attitudes uh, the different firms have in our space. So some are completely unable to push the trigger on hiring without seeing people face-to-face. -face. They're completely paralyzed. Um, but others are continuing to hire an extraordinary clip, making tons of like unusually large hiring decisions without meeting someone face-to-face. -face. And if someone told me that four months ago, I would have been completely baffled. But it's been amazing how quick the transformation has been. Hugh, as I, as I listen to some of your stories and all your experience, one of the things I was thinking about is if you could tell me, how has the industry changed over the last 10, 15 years since you started? Yeah, I mean, so this is, it's interesting, right? I mean, executive search has been around for 50 plus years, and I think it sprung originally out of some of the big management consulting companies. And a lot of it, whether or not you think about the fee structures or the search process, it's sort of the same. And the industry, if you look at the revenues of it as a whole, are dominated by a handful of these large companies that do, you know, all sectors, all functional areas. But a couple of things spring to mind. I mean, when we started in the business, uh, the best data we had on candidates was stored on these really clunky, hyper-proprietary databases that the search firms had. And I remember when you go into pictures, it was always a point of pride to say, look, we have over 100,000 people in our database as if sheer quantity actually matters. And the dirty secret was that half the data was like 20 years old, you know, as a practitioner, you'd realize that, you know, many of the people in the system were actually deceased. But the other way the data was stored was that it was in the head of a recruiter who happened to be mega networked. This sort of recruiter's cerebral Rolodex, this crappy Microsoft Access database has become pretty irrelevant since candidates are now curating their own profiles on LinkedIn, they're on corporate websites, they're on conference lists. Yeah. You've got now access to much richer, much cleaner, more current data. Prospective candidate discovery has kind of gone away as part of what we bring to the table. I think what we add is the candidate engagement piece as well as the candidate evaluation piece, which mm -hmm. is like selling through the noise. It's evangelizing a company. It's shepherding someone through the process. And it's being sympathetic at all times to, you know, human frailties, to egos, uh, you know, anxieties, ambitions, 
families that need to relocate and all these other things. And I think a good search firm is also figuring out whether a candidate is truly excellent by these constant referencing, uh, likely before, again, they've even called a target candidate, rather than just parroting back a LinkedIn profile or a resume. So, you know, the other changes are a bit more prosaic. So things like we can't ask candidates that much about compensation, you know, the Zoom meetings we've talked about, And I think finally, just to round things out, there are a lot of clients that seem to be gravitating towards working with highly specialized boutiques versus large search firms, specifically because the boutique is going to give them more attention and likely more domain knowledge. I think in financial services in particular, you know, where you specialize, there must be just a, a sea change in the geographies. You know, you even started your career in London. I'm sure you spent time in New York. And, you know, I think if you went back 15 years, that really was probably the epicenter. Yeah, certainly New York and London are still big draws, but, you know, we have the Bay Area. We have we have other areas that of clients you must work for. And I, I imagine that geographic diversity is is different than it was 15 years ago. Yeah, it's it's really changed in a big way. So using hedge funds as an example, they were always predominantly based in London, Greenwich, Connecticut, New York, and a handful of other outliers like Citadel up in Chicago. But the majority of them were in those those centers. Uh, what you're seeing in fintech is it is much more evenly distributed around the world. And interestingly enough, San Francisco, which never really had a particularly large classic financial services world, has become I think more exciting for fintech than almost any other location in the world. So you have a bunch of really interesting world-beating companies in places like Square, Plaid, Stripe, to name a few. And I think what concerns me about someone like New York is that you had this really dominate, dominant traditional financial services industry in all of the classic banks and asset managers And a lot of the high fee business is going away. And hopefully it's going to be replaced by fintech. But I think in New York's case, there are some really interesting businesses out there. It's going to be a real stretch to imagine them contributing to the local economy in the same way that classic financial services did. Hugh, um, thank you so much for this. I, I wanted to transition and to you know to one last question, and I was hoping if you could give one last piece of advice to the entrepreneur who is you know potentially entering your field. You know, they're starting their career as an executive recruiter. Maybe they're thinking about starting their own firm, just like you did. What would be the advice that that you gave to them? Oh man, I mean, I've made a ton of toe curling mistakes um, earlier in my career. And this is one of those businesses where you can continually be improving uh, aspects of your approach. So I've got a couple of quick thoughts on things I'd advise someone uh, beginning in search. I think, you know, number one, it would be don't treat candidates like a fee. Too many recruiters essentially recruit them, use candidates, or they treat them like kind of grist for the mill. And so I think it's really important that you look after the candidates, you treat them respectfully. That means giving them super honest feedback, helping them think about their career generally, and just kind of going beyond the call of duty. Um, So first thing is like act with integrity towards them and just don't be a douche. 
um, because essentially they're the lifeblood to your business. And I talk to people every day who are like, I was talking with this recruiter and they never call me back. And I think that's bad for our industry and it's going to develop, you're going to develop a bad reputation. Funnily enough, there's a guy I used to work with who used to tell candidates that he wanted to be their agent. And like, I, I think that's a little bit of an overstatement. And I'm not sure the sentiment was entirely true, but I, I really like the idea of becoming an advocate to both sides of the platform, so the clients and the candidates as well, even if the clients are the ones who are actually paying the bills. Yeah, that's awesome, Hugh. And it's really great advice. Um, I just want to thank you again for, for being our guest today on the Startup Stack. So thank you so much, Hugh. This was awesome. Lewis, it was my pleasure. That was great and really fun. Uh, Hugh had some great advice, such a nice guy. Couldn't have a cleaner garage. Overall, just an awesome conversation. For more on Hugh and our conversation today, visit www.rocketplace.com slash podcast. Remember, we have another episode coming next week. So make sure to subscribe to The Startup Stack in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to them. And thanks again for joining. The Startup Stack, written and edited by Hannah Levy, produced by Leah Jackson.